Uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is the text that we'll be in today. And I'll go ahead and read the text. Uh, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came in by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shilati, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be so strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, so I wanted to first provide some context for where we've been in the book of Haggai and what has led up to these events here in chapter 2. Um, so before uh, Haggai, in 2 Kings chapters uh, 24 and through 25, uh, the Hebrew prophets have been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through injustice and idolatry. Uh, they had been warned that God would send Babylon uh, to take out the city of Jerusalem and haul off the people into exile. And these prophets also believed that there was hope, however, and that God would bring back a transformed remnant of his people, Israel, to live in a new Jerusalem where God's presence would be in their midst. And so as we open in Haggai chapter 1, it is nearly 70 years since the exile, and the world is ruled by the Persians. And they allow the return of any exiled Israelite to go back to the ruins of Jerusalem under the leadership of Joshua, a high priest, and Zerubbabel, an heir from the line of David. And so they all return to to rebuild the city and the temple. And so Haggai opens up in chapter one by accusing people of misplaced priorities. Um, they've come back to Jerusalem, but they're spending all their time and resources rebuilding their own fancy homes while the temple lay in ruin and destruction. And so we see that Haggai asks them if their houses are more important than their allegiance to God and compares their neglect to their ancestors before them 70 years ago and their rebellion. And so Haggai's challenging words evoke a response of the people to start rebuilding the temple, and that's where we pick up here in the events um, starting in chapter 2. And so in verse 1, uh, we see that Haggai is following up one month later with the people of Israel. And we know that because as in verse 1 of chapter 1, it is established that it's the sixth month when Haggai extended the challenge to Zerubbabel and Joshua. And then in verse 2, we see that his audience has expanded beyond the leaders, but also to the remainder of the exiles who returned from Babylon. And so he asked them a series of rhetorical questions here in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? All three of these questions seeks to draw attention to the fact that this temple was inferior to Solomon's temple and caused the people here to be discouraged. And this can be seen here from Ezra 3. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read from the excerpt. Um, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. 
while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. And so the men here were discouraged and weeping because they had seen the temple in its former glory. And Solomon spared no expense um, in the materials and builders to do the work, and the temple uh, to be rebuilt couldn't match the majesty that was the first temple. And however, this comparison um, that is being made here isn't made uh, to diminish the morale of the people who are rebuilding the new temple, um, but rather to turn their attention to the glory of God on who he is. And often we can see kind of these kinds of comparisons that um, Haggai and God is making through him between the past and present as very beneficial, as it wouldn't do any good for the people to think of how magnis magnificent Solomon's temple was compared to their feeble attempts to rebuild his work. And Charles Spurgeon actually had this quote on this uh, passage about um, the nature of comparisons. The smallest of our gifts may be a temptation to us. We are consciously so weak and so insignificant compared with the great God and his great cause that we are discouraged and think it vain to attempt anything. The enemy contrasts work with that of others and with that of those who have gone before us. We are doing so little as compared with other people, therefore let us give up. We cannot build like Solomon, therefore let us not build at all. Yet, brethren, there is a falsehood in all this, for in truth nothing is worthy of God. The great work of others, and even the amazing productions of Solomon, all fell short of his glory. And so Haggai then follows these three rhetorical questions with three encouragements, starting in verse 4, from the Lord to each of the members of his audience. He first says to Zerubbabel, be strong. He then says to Joshua, be strong. And then he says to his people, be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. He transitions the people to move from their past reflections to their present actions by means of these imperatives. And he commands them to continue the work, for he is with them. And this is the second reminder from the Lord in Haggai of his presence, faithfulness, and steadfastness in their lives. The first of which was in verse 13, which we discussed last week, and which Brian did a good job of walking through what it looks like to have God's presence with us. Um, and the same God that did great things in the past was among them today. He had not forgotten them over the last nine centuries, as he reminds them of the covenant he had made in Exodus. And in verse 5, we also see reference to the Spirit. Um, as the third person of the triune Godhead. Under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was among the people, but under the new covenant, he would be in God's people. As the people gave willingly of talent, time, and goods in the building of the tabernacle in Exodus, so now they are exhorted to fulfill their covenant obligation in contributing to their current temple restoration. They are called to move ahead in God's strength to rebuild the temple as the Lord will be with them. And the Lord matches the promise of his presence with promises to provide materially for the temple, as well as looking forward to the decisive presence of God with his people. In verse 6, the Lord says, He will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And this just, doesn't just refer to the removal of kingdoms and establishment of others, but also to the cataclysm in the universe, the subjugation of the nation by the Messiah, and the setting up of his kingdom that will never be destroyed. This is the only verse in Haggai referenced in the New Testament in Hebrews 12, um, verses 26 through 27. And those verses read, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth,
but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And in this present context, however, this is referring to God's immediate intervention in providing for the work at hand, which he describes in the following verses. And so starting in verse 7, he will shake the nations, and the result of this shaking will be the treasures to adorn the temple. But there is an even greater result that the Lord promises. He will fill the house with his glory. And that is with his own presence. With this prophecy, we can see the New Testament foreshadowed as the unfolding of the incarnation of Christ and ultimately in his second coming at the end of the age. And this is referenced in John chapter 2, uh, verses 20 through 21, where Jesus refers to his body as the temple, and again in Revelations 21, verses 22 through 24, where he makes reference to the temple. And moving in verse 8, God again affirms his sovereignty and lordship. Declaring that the silver and gold are his affirms that God ultimately owns all of the wealth of the nations and that he is possessor of all things. The material possessions should be used in obedience and in service of him, not hoarded amongst other, ourselves. They didn't need to be discouraged if they didn't have money for the building project. They just had to boldly trust God who owned every resource and then gave generously. And through this in verse 9, we see God declare that this house shall be greater than the house of Solomon, as he will give peace in this place. This temple was to be a continuation of Solomon's temple and be even greater because it would be filled with his presence. Haggai reminds the people of the great prophetic promise is of the future kingdom of God. This would be the new Jerusalem where God would redeem the world and all the nations would come and participate in his kingdom. It plays a key role in God's plan for the future and one that will bring his people together and be a focal point in God's saving work and represent a sign of God's presence with his people that is eclipsed by the presence of the Lord of hosts and the Lamb. Um, if you want to turn to Revelations 21 verses 23, 22 through 26 to see this reference to his presence um, in the Lamb. And it reads, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gales ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And so despite the disappointing circumstances, the Lord encourages his people to push forward in hope of his presence. And as the people are called to act based on the past, God encourages them as he will move along their process to provide restoration to his house for the coming for his kingdom and for his future glory. And with that, uh, we'll close with prayer and open it up to some discussion. Lord, uh, we thank you for your presence, God. We thank you for the ways in which you have revealed yourself to us, um, not only um, by showing us um, our past, but by showing us your presence in our future, in your future glory, and how you will use your people to bring restoration. And in many ways, you're currently using us, God, in building your kingdom. And so let us step into that faithfully and remember the promises that you have made within your scripture and within our lives. We thank you for all that you're doing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.